What would you do if you knew you were dying, were fed up with playing by the rules, had lost all hope in the future, and had a chance to make one final statement about the state of the world that everybody in your world would hear about? Would you break all the rules and make your point? Or would you struggle on and hope for the best? That's the choice that aging lawyer Ed Pockman has to make as he faces his final days in Pockman's last exhibit. The deputy smiled as he handed Pockman the summons, returning the favor that Pockman had forced upon him many times. Pockman sneered back at him and said nothing. Well, you're welcome, counselor, the deputy said as he turned to leave. Once the door slammed shut, Pockman quickly unfolded the papers. As he expected, it was a summons to appear before the state's attorney discipline commission. He'd been expecting one. Judge Holzapple had taken offense at Pockman's suggestion during his closing in the Mestaxis divorce case that the judge was in bed with the Cummins engine brass, of which Mestaxis was CEO. Pockman smirked as he read it. If this don't prove what I was saying, he thought, I don't know what does. He opened the pencil drawer to his desk and tossed the complaint on top of a growing mound of papers. The complaint that came last month, suing him for malpractice in the Lewis divorce, and the letter from the Gillette Physicians Cooperative advising that his cancer was back and requesting him to call his doctor. The pencil drawer was the place he kept the things he didn't want his secretary reading, things he intended to ignore. He had more important things to think about today. Today was a trial date. He was due in court in 15 minutes. Cancer, malpractice, and legal ethics would have to wait. He had a case to win. turned to the thick file for today's hearing and opened it, making sure he had what he needed. As he rummaged through the paper, he scratched an itch on his right jawline. A sharp sticking pain shot through his face. Blessed mother, he shouted, having forgotten a cancerous lesion was beneath a band-aid on the spot he scratched. Pulling his hand away, he saw a trace of blood. His secretary, Amber Bartles, entered the room pursuing the shout. You okay? she inquired. I'm good, he yelled. You're bleeding again. Let me get the first aid kit. Yeah, Judge Petrus don't like no bloody pleadings, he joked. Well, no, said Bartles. And you need to get those things looked at. Hey, he frowned. I got one, Mother. God rest his soul. I don't need another. You got those exhibits ready? Bartles rolled her eyes and left the room returning with a stack of documents in a first aid kit. She dumped the documents on the desk and plopped open the kit. Come over here, let me see that thing, she ordered. Pockman complied.
Ed, she said, examining his face. You got three more of those things since the last time I looked. I'm calling you Doc today. Not if you want to have a job tomorrow. You stay out of my business, he yelled, poking her on the shoulder for effect. Potman hauled up his fattest case, plopping the huge file into it. He focused back on Bartles and looked at his watch. I suppose you can look to see when I got some free time next week. But I'm making the call to Doc Jensen. Got it? She stiffened up her body and threw up a quick salute. Yes, sir, Sarge. Permission to be dismissed, she said. Get out of here, he barked, waving off her Scott sarcasm. Hawkman listed slowly towards the front door, his hunched frame bent even further by the weight of the leather case. A creak sounded from the door hinges as he forced it open, pushing against the 20 mile an hour winter winds that came from the opposite direction. His arthritic shoulder popped as he braced the door and pushed back against the wind. He hated these cold winters with a passion. Perhaps even more than the young punk on the opposite side of the custody battle he was headed to. He told himself this was his last winter in Gillette County. He was finished with this law gig, ready to kick back and enjoy life without clients and deadlines, judges and clerks. He was 71 now, old enough to have the government start paying him back, ready to spend what winters he had left in Vegas or Scottsdale, hoping someday he could afford more than his trailer in Fort Lauderdale. As he crept slowly out onto the frozen sidewalk, he heard a familiar voice. Ed, Ed Puckman, hold up a minute. Looking up, he saw it was Julius Kleiner, another Gillette County divorce lawyer. Kleiner was one of the good guys in Puckman's book, a veteran lawyer not as concerned with the details of procedure as he was with a good result. Kleiner tiptoed across the icy street and slid across a patch of black ice as he neared Pockman, who reached out and grabbed his arm. Steady as you go, Jules. It's so important you had to stop my forward progress across this frozen tundra. Ed, you owe me a bunch of discovery. Lipscomb, Stetler, Bryant. I've nothing from you on here, hoes, and they're all up next week. What gives? You know I don't need everything in the statute, but I gotta have those tax returns and the pay stubs. We can't get anything done without those. What's going on with you? Who's it like you? Potman stared at him for a pregnant moment as his face reddened. Hey, Jules, he finally replied. I got more cases than just yours, you know. I've been swamped, what with that Spicer custody I was telling you about. And this one, geez, Joe, come on, give a fella a break. And then he reached out and grabbed Kleiner by the arm again. It ain't like you had never been late with the docs to me. Need I start naming cases? You'll get your paper, just back off. You're talking like one of them anal youth they've been hiring over at Pigeon and Burkus. Come on, man, cut me a break. Kleiner pulled away and took a step back. 
Easy, Ed. I'm just asking for what you owe me. I know you're good for it. But my clients are nervous, you know? Lipscomb especially is breathing heavy on me, so just shoot me those docs. And let's get this stuff settled, okay? Then we could uh, go down and maybe have a brew together, you know, relax a bit. We could probably use that, huh? You relax, Jules, Hartman continued. You're acting a little nervous. I'll get you those docs. Tell Lipscomb to take a hike. I gotta go. I can't be late for Petrus. You know how he is. Kleiner nodded and turned to go. Potman went back to tell Amber to get busy with Discovery. His face flushed with the resentment that his friend had called him on such a petty issue. He wondered why Kleiner was so nervous. It had been a long time since going to court made Potman nervous. There had been a time that a hearing like today's would have done just that. Temporary custody in the Schlermacher divorce. Thirty years of divorcing people had taken away the trial day jitters. Starting as a prosecutor, he'd moved on to the biggest firm in Gillette County doing criminal defense. About three years into that, his superiors decided criminal defense didn't pay and that his trial skills could be put to more pecuniary benefit in family litigation. He'd been doing that ever since. Pockman had a real taste for it. Exposing people's dirty laundry and watching them squirm on the stand was quite entertaining, and it paid well. Where else can you get entertainment like this and get paid for it, he would say. But lately, he was losing his taste for this well-paid entertainment. The courts had heard the cries of the child advocates that litigation was bad for children. Layer after layer of pretrial procedure had virtually guaranteed that custody cases would never reach the courtroom. Psychiatrists and counselors would hash out all the issues that Pockman was used to fighting over. By the time the client shelled out for the mediation, the psychiatric evaluation, the custody evaluation, the deposition fees, and the rest of the pretrial regime, most of them neither had the money nor the stomach to carry the fight into the courtroom. Potman was increasingly uninterested in the outcome of all this therapeutic song and dance. He looked back wistfully to the days when he could file a petition one month and lock horns in the courtroom with another litigator the next. There was no need for the endless parade of psychobabblers pontificating about caregiving and nurturing. Much better and quicker result was reached by putting the parents on the stand and letting the truth come out. Truth, of course, was whatever dirt he and his private dick Eugene Sandersaw could dredge up. Once Pockman was done exposing the dark edges of the domicile his client inhabited, no jurist could doubt that only his client was worthy of custody. The other party was barely fit to be called a human, let alone a fit parent. Most of his colleagues found that prospect distasteful, even if they did it for a living, but not Pockman. He relished it. 
it seemed to meet some unspoken need. In his more philosophical moments, he told himself it exposed the truth about human nature. He felt called to point out the flaws in others, at least those that weren't paying him. Perhaps he would cause people to reflect on the error of their ways, and they might be better for it. Deep in his past, he had been the victim of his parents' divorce, his father leaving the home when he was 12. That had left him and his mother dependent on the state and in poverty, and he had never forgotten that. And now the chance to make an errant husband pay for his sins was a source of great energy. That was becoming a thing of the past, a relic of days gone by. He was now more likely to send the client off to the mediator and have the return smiling, bearing documents, and announcing they had reached a settlement with their ex. All well and good, he thought. Good for the parties, the kids, the mediator, and the mediator's bottom line. But not so good for the lawyers. What of their bottom line? Cleaning up the language of a poorly drafted custody agreement did not pay nearly as well as making a businessman explain why he was on business to Vegas when there was no record of a, quote, business meeting, unquote. The bottom line was suffering. Wren had been late several times, and Potman had cut his draw in half so that Amber could take home a paycheck. Besides that... The truth was the practice just wasn't as much fun without the trials. Pockman was never much good at the counselor part of the law business. He could stomach the hand-holding if he knew at the end there would be a chance to prove his point about humanity by shredding a strained husband's lies. Schleiermacher was proving to be an exception, a breath of litigious air in a world where settlement incentives had all but sucked the oxygen out of the room. He was retained by the husband, a 50-ish, balding, short man who was nearly as round as he was tall. Mrs. Schleiermacher was younger, a nervous, petite blonde whose eyes darted from side to side when she talked. Four children in her suspicious mind had left her looking haggard and older than her 42 years. Their children ranged from a senior in high school to the youngest, Michaela, a second grader. She was what the fight was about. The eldest Schleiermacher girls would live with their mother. The son would live with his father. Where Michaela would live was what the parties could not agree on. What made the case an exception was the fact that Mrs. Schleiermacher had a nephew that had just passed the bar. He worked for Fickham and Markwell, who usually didn't do divorce. Most inexperienced lawyers would not have been allowed to handle a matter like this, but Aaron Britton had shown so much promise, his firm decided to take a chance. Mrs. Schleiermacher's naive trust in her nephew and the firm's hope of future profit conspired to create a huge advantage for Pachman a lawyer on the other side in way over his head that needed to prove he could win in court. 
At least that's what Pachmann initially thought. Reality was proving to be different. On the day after his discovery answers were due, the youngster sent a nasty email announcing he would be filing a motion to compel if compliance wasn't forthcoming. Even more surprising, he took Pachmann before the judge when he didn't get an answer. No one had ever done that before. Britain had the law on his side. True enough, Pachmann thought, but that's not the way we do things here. He knew Judge Petrus pretty well, but how would he rule on a sanctions request? It was untested waters. He didn't know what to think. Petrus found him in contempt, ordered him to jail the next day if the answer is worth forthcoming. Pachmann was up past midnight prepping his answers. The longer he worked, the redder he grew in the face. He liked Petrus, so he deflected the resentment he felt for his pending jail time towards the kid lawyer who brought the motion. As he fumed, he concluded he was done with the pressures of playing by the rules with Aaron Britton. Then he finished his interrogatory answers, but not his fuming. He was done with legal ethics, done with the judge's expectations, done with clients and their stupid demands. Maybe he was done with law practice and its multitude of hassles. It was time, he concluded, to use the exhibit. The exhibit was something Pachman had long owned. He kept it locked in the top drawer of his office desk. The exhibit had been owned by one of his mentors, Jerry Sproles, an old divorce litigator who had retired around the time Pachman had left the firm and went out on his own. And you have a hand to use this, Jerry had told him, but the world's not what it used to be. People are getting nasty. Lawyers don't behave like gentlemen no more. So just keep this somewhere, because you, know, you never know. Pachman had left to sit there gathering dust for 20 years. It wasn't that he hadn't been tempted. Divorce practice could be like the wild, wild west sometimes. Once his old rival, Victor Knowles, had handed Pachman's client a ballpoint pen to sign a stipulation. And then he emptied out the casseting, turned it into a hitter pipe, and had his client smoke some weed with it. The cops almost believed her when she cried how hubby was smoking in front of the children. His prints were all over it. But she didn't wipe down the tip where she put her lips. DNA testing was new, and Knowles didn't think of it. Pachman was thinking about unlocking that drawer until the lab test came back. Francine Aronson had her client open up a bank account in the name of her client, soon-to-be ex-husband's business. Back before 9-11, their small-town bank let a wife open an account for her husband, as long as she brought back the signature cards the next day. Francine put 50000 into that account that her client had found while cleaning the husband's office. She then filed for sanctions against the ex for failure to disclose that account in his discovery answers. It only seemed right. He'd been hiding the cash from her for years. 
Well, lucky for Pachman, Sandersaw was dating a teller at the bank who found the tape on the security cam of the wife bringing in the signature card. The exhibit might have been useful then, but as usual, Gene came through for him. And so it sat unused. Talkman congratulated himself on his restraint, tolerating as much as he had and never opening that drawer. But Sprouls was right. The world was getting nasty. This new breed, he mused, had just as soon kiss you as kill you. The old loyalties were gone. Sure, he told Kleiner several times. We'll put on the dog and pony show in the courtroom. And we'll fight it out like gladiators, button heads till the judge pulls us apart. But at the end of the day, we shake hands, and then we go down and we have a cold one. There weren't many left he could do that with. The kids nowadays had to run back to the office, pound out 20 more interrogatories, find 10 more cases to cite. He opened the pencil drawer and took out the key to that top drawer. The lock put up a bit of resistance to the key, but with a little force, it clicked open. And there it sat, in the same place he'd left it so long ago. He picked it up and ran his hand over it. I never had much use for these, he mused. Pockman paused for a second and pondered whether this was the right thing to do. How far had he fallen? I thought you was better than Knowles he asked himself. He dropped the exhibit into his case. He had spent the night convincing himself the kid needed a lesson, and this was the right way to teach it. The punk brought it on himself, he thought. The disciplinary commission ain't gonna like it, but nobody that's down in them trenches is gonna blame me. He snapped the case shut and headed for the door. He'd flung the door open before Bartles realized that he was leaving. Ed, you think you might want to bring these with you? She held the answers to Britain's discovery request above her head, giving him a look of fake astonishment. Hawkman slapped himself on the forehead. Holy mother, bring him here. I gotta move. I'm late. Petrus don't like it when you're late. She jogged to the door with the papers and handed them off. Potman turned as he grabbed them and headed out into the windy street. Not wanting to slow down, he carried the papers in his free hand. Three steps out the door, he hit a patch of black ice that took his feet out from under him. The papers went flying as he landed on his bottom. The wind flung the papers down the street. All Potman could do was lie on the ground and watch them swirl away. His secretary threw the door open. Ed, are you okay? He looked at her in disgust. Well, my ear a little sore, but that's the least of my problems. 
He pointed in the direction that the wind was blowing his discovery answers, now barely visible. I gotta have those docks. Elsewise, you're gonna have to call Kleina and tell him to put together a stay motion on my jail time. I'm wearing heels, Ed. There's no way I'm chasing after those papers on this ice. Come on back in and let's call Petrus. Surely he'll understand. Pockman looked down the block, waving off the documents. I doubt it. Trudging back to his desk, Pockman was hit with a wave of adrenaline that nearly froze him. Every sore point on his body throbbed. The adrenaline doubled the dread he felt at the prospect of calling Petrus. Hoisting his case to the top of his desk, he slammed it down hard on the desk, the metal of the exhibit reverberating through the soft leather of the case. His breath grew short and his heart raced as he turned toward the phone and the thought of what to say to the unforgiving judge. He picked up the receiver once, but then he slammed it down. He pulled open the pencil drawer and retrieved the letter from the Gillette Physicians Cooperative. Reading it again confirmed what was already drilled permanently into his brain. Survival rates past six months from onset are rare. It is advisable to make plans in accordance with this test result. Drawing a heavy sigh, he opened the case and pulled out the exhibit. Opening the chamber, he found that it was, as he remembered, fully loaded. Amber, he yelled. Close the door and give me a minute. Bartle's arm appeared and slammed the door shut. He thought about writing a note, but then decided the presence of the doctor's letter on the desk said it better than he would. He worried about Amber having to deal with the mess, but convinced himself that it was better than months of trips to the hospital, having to watch him deteriorate in the process. He opened his mouth and lifted the barrel of the gun to it. Then the phone rang. Mr. Schleiermark is on the line. He says he's got big news. You can't wait, I tried to... Yeah, yeah, j just put him on, he interrupted. Mr. Parkland, this is Frank Schleiermarker. I got those prints off her favorite wine glass like Mr. Sandersaw showed me, but I guess I had second thoughts about the whole business, so I, I called her up last night and, well, well, uh, we, we worked things out. We came to an understanding about the kids. I, I'll see her every other weekend and she'll come over here two nights a week when we don't have the weekend. Uh, it's what's best for the kids, Mr. Parkman. That's, and that's what counts, right, Mr. Parkman? I'm here, Frank, Potman said. He was busy looking for the key to his top drawer. He found it and opened the drawer. 
Carefully picking up the exhibit, he placed it back where it had been for 20 years. She called a lawyer. He's supposed to write something up for us to sign, so I guess we got it all settled, Mr. Parkman. You aren't going to need this tape with the fingerprints in, right? What, what should I do with that, Mr. Parkman? Uh, Mr. I know, Parkman mumbled, shaking as he told, held the phone. Uh, just toss it, I guess. Don't, don't put it where nobody can find it. Okay, I will do, Mr. Parkman. Oh, you sound kind of sad that we got all this settled. I, I just want to say we wouldn't have done it if you hadn't done such a good job. You have my wife scared to death, man. She did not want to get on that stand with you asking the questions. I owe you a lot, sir. I have my checkbook with me today, so, so let me know what I owe you. Oh, you can bet on that, Frank. That's guaranteed. Parkman laughed as he clicked off the phone. Parkman set down the phone and turned his attention back to the exhibit in the drawer. He pulled the drawer back open and looked at the pistol sitting there for a moment. Then his secretary's familiar knock sounded on his door. He quickly slammed the door shut. Yeah, he yelled. Yeah, that Britain kid called, said Schleiermacher is settled. Amber said, poking her head through the door. He's got the settlement papers drawn up. He wants to know if he should email them over here or just bring them to the courthouse. He, he's dropping that whole contempt thing. Parkman rolled his eyes and blew out a big puff of air. Ain't that just like them anal youth they got breeding over there at Pigeon? I should have seen this coming. I knew that little punk wouldn't follow through. Tell him just to bring it with him. I gotta leave now or I'm gonna be late. He grabbed his case off his desk and headed for the door, picking up the key to his desk drawer on the way out. Slowly treading across the icy sidewalk, he made his way to the intersection and the sewer grate that lay on the curbing of the street. Digging into his pocket, he fished out the key to the desk drawer. He took one last look, drew a heavy sigh, and dropped the key down the grate.